Verses 19 and 20 we read, Now we know that what things soever the law said, it said to them that uh, under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And in Titus 3 verse 3 for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish disobedient deceived serving diverse lusts and pleasures living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. These and many other passages of Holy Writ are the basis of the instruction in our catechism in Lord's Day 2. Whence knowest thou thy misery out of the law of God? What doth the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us that briefly in Matthew 22:37-40. Quote: Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? In no wise. For I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. We must remember, beloved, when we enter into the discussion that follows in the next three, four Lord's Days, that they mean to give us a reason why we confess uh, that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we have no gospel, but only misery and condemnation in these three or four or five lost days. That, however, is not the purpose of the Heidelberg Catechism. It certainly is not the purpose to make us miserable. The practical purpose of the Heidelberg Catechism, and by the way, uh, the Catechism is always thoroughly practical, practical in the sound sense of the word, 
practical in the sense that doctrine and life belong together, practical in the spiritual sense of the word, because, beloved, the Heidelberg Catechism is always practical, therefore its purpose is not to make us miserable, but to comfort us. And in order to comfort us, we must know our misery. Not only that, but to comfort us thoroughly and to cause us more and more to partake of that true comfort and only comfort in life and death. We must not only know our misery, but we must know how great our sins and miseries are. That is the question. And that question, how great our sins and miseries are in the light of the comfort that we belong to our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of a catechism treats in the Lord's days that follow. In this present Lord's day, it is evident uh, that it speaks of the knowledge of our sins and misery. And speaking of the knowledge of our sins and misery, it also ought to be and is undoubtedly evident that the Catechism emphasizes, first of all, the necessity of that knowledge. We must know, we must know our sins and miseries. We must know our misery as to its nature as well as to its extent before we can ever appreciate, truly appreciate, spiritually appreciate the only comfort in life and death that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, secondly, in this Lord's Day, the Harbour Catechism describes the source of that knowledge of our misery. Whence knowest thou thy misery. And the answer is don't miss this, beloved, because that little baby that's all right. The answer is we know our misery from the law of God. Also that you must understand in the light of the Heidelberg Catechism. We have, we have spiritual knowledge of our misery and that spiritual knowledge of our misery 
finds its source in the law of God as taught us by the Spirit of God, not otherwise. And finally, the Arabic Catechism describes the nature, the contents, and the extent of that misery. In the light of the law of God, the Arabic Catechism confesses that we are exactly the opposite. The old saying is, beloved, Christ everything and we nothing, or God everything and we nothing. That's all right, but in actual reality it's much worse than that. It is not Christ everything and we nothing, or God everything and we nothing, it's Christ or God everything and we are worse than nothing. Worse than nothing. We are negative. A minus mark is before our name. A spiritual minus mark. Sinners we are. Corrupt, guilty, damnable. And therefore, we speak to you on that knowledge of our misery. It's necessity that is, the necessity of that knowledge, why must we know our misery? Uh, the source of that knowledge, the law of God, and uh, finally the contents of that knowledge. First of all then, why is that knowledge of our misery necessary? That is very simple, beloved. Uh, that is really very simple. From a natural point of view, no one would ever think of doing anything else uh, than ask, uh, what is uh, the nature of my misery, and why must I know the nature of my misery, and what is the source of that knowledge, and what is really the cause of my misery. Uh, from a natural point of view, I say no one would ever think of say, doing anything else. If a man is sick, you do not simply pour medicine into him. If a man has pain, you do not simply wheel him to the operating table and have the doctor cut him open. Know that sick man wants to know, first of all, what is his misery? He wants to know that. From a natural point of view, I say no one ever does that. He wants to know where is the location of his trouble. Is it in his stomach? Is it in his gallbladder? Is it his appendix? Is it his teeth, his tonsils? He wants to know that. That's the reason. In that natural sense, every man asks that question. Why must I know my misery? That's simply, that's really a silly question from a natural point of view. Yet, beloved, from a spiritual point of view, the world 
the natural man disregards that question entirely. He doesn't want to know. At least he doesn't ask the question. He doesn't ask the question, why am I miserable? Uh, that he is miserable, of course he knows. You don't have to uh, ask whether he is miserable. Everybody knows that. There's no man that is not miserable. Even in a very general and natural sense of the word, there's no man that is not miserable. If it were only for, for uh, the reason uh, that he dies, he's miserable. Everybody is afraid. Everybody fears. You may laugh it off. You may be superficial. You may say, oh, I don't care. Makes no difference, beloved. Everybody is miserable. Principally, everybody is miserable because, because of death and because of the fear of death. I talked to a man who was on the train years ago. He was a, a preacher. And uh, he was a chaplain in the army. And uh, we talked together about the question of uh, the uh, state of man. And he said to me, there were others present, uh, sailors and soldiers, in the smoker of the Pullman. And he said to me, you know, Reverend, my experience is that man is afraid of life. I told him, you're mistaken. I told him, no man is afraid of life. Every man is afraid of death. I told him, it may be that a man is afraid of what he calls life because his life is characterized by misery. And I told him, our form for the administration of baptism tells us that our life is nothing but a continual death. Afraid, but he's not afraid of life. I told him in the presence of those sailors, if a man only believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, he's, he's rid of his fear, but he's afraid not of life but of death. And that is true. All fear is fear of death. And all misery is principally caused by the knowledge of death. That's all. Remove death. Death in its real sense. In every sense of the word. And there is no fear anymore. There is no misery anymore. 
You can go into details. And, beloved, your daily papers, you don't have to ask whether a man is miserable. Your daily paper announces every evening that man and the world is full of misery. Daily papers announce that, advertise that, gives you the news of that misery. That's all it is. Really, that's all it is, that paper. War, revolution, rebellion, strikes, boycotts, misery, sickness, accidents, automobile accidents and other accidents, fires, damages, everything, all the paper is full of misery of the world. You ask, am I miserable? That's a silly question. But, beloved, you ask the natural man, why are you miserable? Why? What is the cause? What is the source of the knowledge of your misery? And then he shakes his head and says, I don't know, I don't care about that at all. Very silly. In the natural sense, he certainly wants to know everything. In the spiritual sense, he doesn't care to know. But yet, that is just as important, beloved. Just as important. What is the nature of a misery? Where is it? Where is it located? Is it in our environment? Is it in the condition of the world outside of us? Is it in uh, the condition of society? Is it in the conditions of work and business? Well, let's remove it then, if that is the source of the misery. Is it, uh, is it in, in man somehow? Uh, is it a man in such a way that he can be approved? Is it this way, perhaps, that man has not yet reached the stage uh, in evolution which he ought to have reached in order to become uh, happy and free, uh, free from fear? Let's strive and let's strive ahead. But we always ask the question, what is, what is the nature of your misery? That the natural man doesn't want. He simply says, oh, let's live on and let us, let us uh, improve conditions as much as possible. Let's improve man too, let's improve education. And uh, in the meantime, he doesn't uh, uh, talk about uh, the misery of man at all. That we must know, beloved. That's why we must know. But there's more. We must not only know uh, the nature of our misery, we must know the extent of our misery. The extent of it. Otherwise, we cannot really have the only confident life and death that belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Not really. 
that even even that is true from a natural point of view. Suppose uh, the doctor locates my trouble in my stomach. Natural trouble, natural sickness. Locates my trouble in the stomach. Even then, the question is how serious is it? How serious is it? Do I need an operation? Is it just uh, a question of over acidity perhaps? Do I have too much acid in my stomach? Is it ulcers? Is it cancer perhaps? All these questions concerns the seriousness and the extent of my trouble. And I must know that too before I apply remedy. Now, also that, beloved, is true in the spiritual sense of the word. Oh, very, very, very true. Very true. The question is, is my trouble, suppose, suppose the trouble is in me. All right. Suppose even the trouble is in my guilt. If that is the case, the question is, how serious is that guilt? How guilty am I? Can I perhaps atone, make good for my sin? Is that possible? Can I perhaps at least partly atone for my sin and guilt? Is that possible? Is there perhaps any hope at all, at least for some percentage in me, so that I can improve myself and get rid of my misery and satisfy God? Is it possible for me at least to tell God, Oh God, I'm sorry I'm a sinner and I'm sorry that I sinned, but I promise thee I'll do better? Is that possible perhaps? If that's a sinner, can he, can he promise God to do better? Then, then I cannot say this is my only comfort in life and death, that I belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. I can, pass, I can probably say in that case, uh, that is part of my comfort. I cannot, I cannot do without Jesus. I need his help. But not my only comfort that I belong to him. My comfort is also that I can do something myself. I suppose that that is not, that that is not so. I suppose that I can never pay for my sin and guilt. Suppose that uh, 
I must have someone, I must have Jesus Christ to pay, pay for my sins. Suppose that that is also, or two. Suppose that I say, no, 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 I cast all my sins upon Jesus. And then the question is still, what is the extent of my misery? Am I only guilty? Or am I also corrupt? That's the question. That's a very serious question. Am I corrupt? The question is for that, how corrupt am I? Am I totally depraved? Beloved, don't you see that this question concerning the nature and the extent of a misery concerns our real need of Jesus Christ and of Jesus Christ only? Don't you see that this question concerning the nature and the extent of a misery concerns the question where not only whether I need a Savior and not only whether that Savior uh, cleanses me from guilt, not even only whether that Savior is only powerful to redeem me from the corruption and defilement of sin and guilt. Everybody, everybody, everybody that confesses to be uh, a Christian, everybody that confesses to believe Scripture, says that. Even the Armenian will say that. No question about that. Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. Jesus delivers me from the guilt of sin, and Jesus delivers me from the power of sin, and from the corruption of sin. He does everything. So ready. But beloved, The question is, am I so corrupt that, that Jesus must come to me and that I never can come to him? Or is it possible uh, that uh, in my corruption I can nevertheless come to Jesus? That's the question. If Jesus must come to me, if the statement I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, does not mean I have accepted him, but means he has accepted me. 
It is true, beloved, that I am so absolutely corrupt and depraved that if it were not for an altogether eternal love with which God loved me before the foundation of the world, I could never, never, never be saved if it were not that God has chosen me, sovereignly chosen me, I would be absolutely lost. If that's the case, then I am so corrupt that I cannot come to Jesus, but he must come to me, he must receive me, then my salvation depends only, only, only on God. What is the question now? What is don't you see the importance of the question? What is the nature of thy misery? And what is the extent of thy misery? How great is thy sin and misery? That is very important, beloved. And that stands in close connection with the question, Whence, whence knowest thou thy misery? How the law of God. The law... What is the law? The law, beloved, is not just a code which is prescribed for the creature. The law is the living will of God for every creature. The living will of God. The living will of God which God himself maintains for every creature. Every creature. There's a law for the sun, a law for the moon, a law for the stars, a law for the water, a law for the air. There's a law for the fish, a law for the beast of the field, a law for the birds of the air, and so there's a law for man. The law for the fish is that he must be in the water. God has so created the fish that that is the law of the fish. The fish and the law belong together. The fish and the law are in harmony with each other. And the moment that fish transgresses that law and jumps out of the water, God punishes that fish and kills it. The same is true of the birds of the air. And it's true of the trees of the field. It's the law of the tree that it must be rooted in the soil. And the moment that law is transgressed and the a tree is uprooted that God, God maintains his law for that tree and kills the tree. That's the law for every creature. So there's also law for man. There's a law for man's physical nature, a law for his body, a law for his soul. And there's a law for his blood, a law for his heart, physical heart, I mean, 
and a law for his lungs, and law for his stomach, and there's a law for his thinking, and a law for his willing, a law for his mind, a law for his longing, a law for his psychological action. It's all law. And so, for man, in distinction from every creature, according to the nature of man, there's a law which is called the moral law. That moral law is for man because man's nature is such that he looks like God according to his creation. Man was made after the image of God according to Scripture. That's his nature. That's his being, his very being. His moral, ethical being, his spiritual being, is that he stands in the image of God. For that image of God, for that being, that is created after the image of God, so that he is adapted to God and looks like God, looks like God in his, oh yes, in his body and soul, but looks like God is mind and heart and spirit. For that being, God is law. And that law is love me. Love me. That's what God says to man. Not merely in the Ten Commandments, or in the summary of the Ten Commandments which the Lord gives, but that's, God says that, beloved. God says that. Don't forget that. God speaks. He says that. He says that every moment. There's never a moment when God does not say to man, love me, love me, love me. Never a moment. That's God. God always says, still more, God says to that creature that is created after the image of God, love me, love me only, only. Love me only. All other love must be part of that love of God. Man may never love anything that is not of the love of God. Love me only. That really the commandment, isn't it? You remember uh, that uh, quotation of the Heidelberg Catechism? The quotation of Scripture in the Heidelberg Catechism is very uh, striking, beloved. The Lord does not say to the man that asked him that question, uh, what is the meaning of the law? He does not say, uh, this is uh, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and mind and soul and strength. 
that is the first and greatest or greater commandment, the Lord says, this is the first and great commandment. Great, great commandment. Not greater or greatest, but great. That is, this, this is the commandment that includes all other commandments. The, the great commandment. And the second is not different from it. The second is not less. It's not so that there is a greater commandment and a, and a lesser commandment, a smaller commandment. No, it's so. The second is like unto it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. That's like the first commandment. It's the two commandments are exactly alike. That is, the great commandment includes the second commandment. And the second and the great and the first commandment are absolutely alike. They all mean Love me, love me. That's what God says. Love me, love me with all thy being. That's the law. Love me with all thy being. Love me with thy heart. That first of all. Love me with the mind and soul and strength and will and all thy powers. Love me from day to day, from moment to moment, with a whole being from the heart. That's why, that's why, in this connection, uh, the Arabic Catechism quotes the law not as to its precepts, but as to its essence, as to its central significance. Oh, you know, the precept, the precepts of the law tell us, tell us, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't, don't, don't. Uh, that's the precepts of the law. But there, the essential principle of the law does not say do this, but says be this, be this, be this. Love, love is not a question of what we can do. Love is a question of our nature. I either love or hate, but I certainly cannot control whether I love or hate. If you hate me, beloved, in that respect, oh, you're responsible even for your hatred, don't forget that. But you can't help it. Not, not without the grace of God. You cannot say, well, Domini, from now on, if you hate me, you don't. But say you do. If you hate me, you cannot say, uh, after my sermon, well, no, Domini, I uh, won't hate you anymore. I love you. Oh, no. Love is a question of the heart. And the heart, no man can control. He has no control over his own heart. And therefore I say, as long as you study the commandments, 
precept upon precept. You simply stand before the demand, do, 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 and don't, don't, don't. But when you stand before the essence of the law, the question is, what are you? What are you? Are you for or against whom? God. What are you? What are you in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, in your strength? What are you? And to that question, beloved, the Scriptures, and we too, and the Albert Catechism, answer, I'm all wrong. Not, I do wrong. Oh, yes. That's, uh, that's true. True enough. But that's not the deepest question. The question is, what am I? And to that question, the Catechism, Scripture, and our Christian consciousness answers, I am all wrong. All wrong. The Lord demands, love me. That means, God says to me, from moment to moment and from day to day, love me with all thy heart and with all thy mind and with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy being. That's what God says to me in his law every moment. And I say to God, Every moment, with all my mind and heart and soul and strength, I hate thee. All wrong. Canst thou keep that law perfectly? No, the catechism says. No, uh, but I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Hatred instead of love. Prone to hate. That's awful, beloved. That's awful, an awful indictment. An awful indictment. The question is, is it a self-indictment to you? That's really the question. Is it a self-indictment to you? Do you criticize, beloved, do you criticize this severe preaching? When I say to you and to myself, you all hate God and you all hate one another by nature, all hate God and all hate one another by nature, 
the worst. You think criticize when I preach to you and to myself. You are all prone to hate God and the neighbor. That works. In 1924, those that wanted common grace uh, said that that prone or inclined means uh, we are not actually always hating God and hating one another. We're only inclined to. Beloved, uh, that's not the meaning of the catechism. The meaning of the catechism is this. Here is the law. And the law is straight. The law stands upright. That's the law. And prone, prone, beloved, means I have so departed from that straight law that I lie flat on my back. Prone. And prone in hatred instead of standing upright according to the law in love I'm prone in hatred that's my nature what an awful indictment that is awful indictment that means beloved I do not love God. It means I cannot love God. It means I will not love God. It means there is no love of God in my heart and mind and soul and strength. Of all, I am all wrong. Is that your confession? I say it's mine. You say it's yours. Beloved, if you say that, you know why? And now I'm going to say something that is very paradoxical. That sounds very contradictory. But there's no more contradictory than the Christian is in himself contradictory. If you hate God, no, that's not it. If you say that you hate God, if you confess that you hate God, really, really, really confess, so that you know it, so that you know that you are full of hatred of God, so that you know spiritually that you are full of hatred of God, you know why? It's because you love God. If you say that you hate God, it's because you love God. If you really say that, if you really say that from the heart, if you really say that in principle, if you really say that, beloved, in repentance, in the true knowledge, of your sin and misery, it is only because you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And because he has in principle delivered you from the power of sin and death and instilled into your heart the new principle of life, the life of Christ. And that principle of the life of Christ is the principle of the love of God. And in that love of God you say to God, O God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I hate thee. I hate my brother. I hate my neighbor. I'm sorry. Forgive and deliver. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who has delivered me from all the power of sin and the devil. And therefore, beloved, therefore I can stand this preaching and admit it and confess it and agree with it wholeheartedly. I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Amen. We thank thee, O Lord, for thy word and for thy gospel, and for all thy grace which thou hast bestowed upon us, even in this morning hour, as we might worship together as thy people in thy house, and as we might indeed hear our own condemnation, and of our own corruption, and of the impossibility ever to do anything of ourselves, but also might hear that the very fact that we know that corruption and confess that corruption is an evidence that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Sanctify thy word unto our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen.